Hello, thank you so much for joining me for episode four of Back to Life. My name's Millie and in this podcast I talk with artists, musicians and creators about recovery, whatever that means to you, from mental health challenges, addiction, trauma and the role of creativity in their healing. If it all sounds a bit heavy, well, I mean, sometimes, yes, it is, I'm not going to lie, but I can promise you there's also lots of humour, lightness and plenty of hope from some really inspirational people who've overcome so much and gone on to live meaningful lives, fired up by a real sense of purpose and passion. And today's guest, Lauren Burnett, is absolutely all of that and so much more. She has such a great energy, a wicked sense of humour and an absolutely jaw-dropping life story, a real life of extreme highs and extreme lows. But as you'll hear, now she's finding that elusive middle ground. Lauren is a recovering addict and she found recovery after an incredibly near brush with death that left her with life-changing injuries. In early recovery as a new mum, she founded the fashion label Luella Rockefeller, which caught the eye of a millionaire investor in New York, But this isn't your usual rags to riches, addict turns their life around and lives happily ever after story. We're going to talk about the reality of what happens when you try and fix your insides with outside stuff, the futility of achievement addiction and so much more. Okay, let's roll the podcast. I've been asking everyone the same question because we're all coming out of lockdown. We're getting back to life post-pandemic. We hope post-pandemic. How... How is that process for you? How are you feeling about it all? I'm just going to be as honest as I can. And um, during the pandemic, especially the first lockdown, even like before we were even put into lockdown, because I'm a recovering addict, I have a lot of systems in place and coping mechanisms. So even the anxiety of those being taken away from me was so bad it put me into like the worst kind of trauma from my past and I think as well because when I was in my active addiction like my most active um, before I went into recovery I was admitted into ICU four times in one year with my lungs So I think when the government said, you know, there's a respiratory disease and, you know, there's people that are high risk, it was just so scary. And during that time, I was stuck in, you know, with my children 24-7, trying to keep my mind straight, trying to get my work done because we were still having to work from home and homeschool our children. I was really going through a relationship breakdown, so I was doing it pretty much on my own. And then... Um, a girl who I seen as my little sister, she is beautiful, such a pure soul, committed suicide. And that was it then. I just completely hit rock bottom. I, I just, I couldn't make sense of anything. It's hard because I have a very love-hate relationship with a 12-step program and meetings. Um, I did five years of pure abstinence where I did nothing and then after five years I tried to introduce balance and that really worked for me for three years until the world went crazy 
and I went crazy too. It was re- it's been a really hard time. So with a relationship breakdown and what was going on in the pandemic and grieving for a friend, but not feeling the pain because I, I would do anything to distract myself from feeling the loss. So yeah, I've had to go back into full recovery and abstain again because I don't want to keep doing things, anything external that masks my pain and I've had to like go to a bereavement therapist I've had to go back to my sponsor with my tail between my legs which was hard and you know just ask for help and be really honest with my parents as well and just be like look this is what's what I'm going through and I'm really struggling and I do have a bit of an ego so it has been hard and humbling to be like look, it's not working for me anymore. I need this help. But also surrendering again has gave me a huge amount of peace. Like right now, these last two weeks, three weeks, I have laid my head on the pillow and been so proud of myself. And you know that I made that conscious decision before anything went too bad. In a nutshell, lock, lock, lockdown and the pandemic was crap. Yeah, it sounds like you've really been through it. And whilst you were talking, I was just thinking about that idea that it's not the feelings that are the problem. It's the things we do not to feel the feelings. And that's that's really, that's where the danger is, you know. And I totally relate to that. You know, you take away the drugs and there are a million other things you can do not to feel your feelings still and I think like compulsive work compulsive busyness manic socializing obsessive behavior around relationships or other people um yeah exercise food all of it there's so many other avenues aren't there to not feel your feelings um other than drugs and and those things are that's that's the dangerous thing not the actual feelings themselves like allowing the feelings to come and and move through you um and be healed is is an entirely appropriate response to like the huge sort of traumas and losses that you've gone through but I totally relate to that I mean when I I remember going through my first broken heart and recovery and I just told myself I'll give myself three months of grieving and then I was like right no more I can't you know, no more and basically kind of shut it all off with manic working, you know, manic socialising and it was really unhealthy and that actually led to me relapsing after multiple years in recovery. This is a while ago now, but yeah, I totally get what you're saying about that. I'm glad you said that because I really resonate with that because see, first time in recovery, I was on such a recovery buzz and I'd get little successes and I almost became totally addicted to the way that made me feel. So I took on more and more and more responsibility. But all I was doing was distracting myself from actually doing the work. So I became drowning in responsibility. The stress in itself was just too much to take as well. So it's nice because I'm going back into this maturer and as a mother now and I am reflecting on first time around and being able to be like, right, well, don't do that this time and don't take on any more responsibilities unless they pay extremely well, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I'm just very conscious of um, 
trying to keep my life as peaceful and simple as possible right now. But I love mm. distracting myself with people. Yeah. I mean, that was my mantra coming back from my relapse was like, keep it simple, keep it simple, like keep it simple. And I had to kind of remind myself to say no to things that seemed exciting, you know, because that thing of like, I was just addicted to excitement, adrenaline, achievement, you know, <laughs> and it's not surprising because I was such a like hopeless, like drug addict, like so much of my life was obliterated by drug ad drug addiction that when I got into recovery, realized I had a brain, I could do things, I could achieve things, I could do a good 100%. job, I could get applause, you know, no wonder that became my new drug. And, uh, we've never had it, also, we've never had it before. So when we were getting had these it. accolations, it is like a drug, you're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm actually worthy, you know, because that's what yeah. we lack, our real self-worth. Exactly. Exactly. I was going to say and like, yeah, couple that with like some real core low self-esteem that tells you you're not good <laughs> enough. And then like, what's what could be more compelling than everyone telling you you're amazing, you're doing great. A drug um, in itself. Yeah. And then you can absolutely drive yourself to complete um, uh, meltdown burnout. and complete overload. Yeah, absolutely. Burnout. Yeah. So yeah, so it is. Yeah. So um, about kind of balance and also what you said about kind of the humbling process of having to come back and ask for help and I think you know I've got some similar experience there because I had like four years of recovery and then relapsed I mean my relapse story is quite different to yours I do call it a relapse um but um when I came back like it was the most humbling kind of experience I'd been through because I'd been on such a high with my first you know few years in recovery and then I had to kind of like you say come back with my sort of tail between my legs and and learn everything all over again and just like become teachable again and put aside all the things I thought I knew about myself about recovery about the world put it all aside and just try and be a beginner again and I think that beginner's attitude is something that I keep with me now even like you know five years on I still feel like I want to keep that beginner's attitude to life because the minute I start to think I've got it sussed and I know what's going on that's when I'm headed Complacency. for headed for trouble Complacency. Yeah. I'm the, I, I did the same you know so this podcast is about recovery and creativity so I want to talk to you about creativity and what that means to you in your recovery so whilst I was really an active addiction I used to write poetry. I was a little bit obsessed, I'd say, with like Pete Doherty and like that sort of scene and culture. So much so, I just decided to delve in it and live in Camden Town. Um, so I, the, the sort of like romanticism around it, that's an escapism in itself as well. So I used to write poetry and one of the poems I wrote was called Betrayed and Decayed. And it's like betrayed by men, decayed by drugs. And um, it says in it, one of the worst things is stifled creativity. And because I, I, I knew I was creative, I just didn't know a channel or an outlet. I couldn't sing, couldn't dance, couldn't write music, you know, like the normal channels. But I knew I had it I in wished me. I could sing. Oh, my God, I would have loved to. I bet you would be amazing. I'd be dangerous. I'd be dangerous yeah. if I could sing and dance. <laughs> I was always like, why can't I sing? I want to be a front woman. <laughs> I know. My best friend's like, Lauren, can't have it all. 
you're good looking, <laughs> chill out. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I sort of always knew I was creative. And then when I got into recovery and I had my second baby, I had two children under two and breastfeeding. It was just, I was starting to lose my mind in early recovery already. And I just thought I need to keep my mind busy for myself because um, Peppa Pig is going to slowly decay me. So I thought, what do I love? And I love fashion. So back then, um, I'm from an island called Jersey and it's a very affluent island. You know, it's a wealthy island. So the charity shops were filled with like secondhand designer. And at the time, they hadn't cottoned on to what the value was. And so I used to buy Burberry Max for like 10 quid, get them dry cleaned. And then I'd sell them on a site called Vestiaire in Paris for like 400, 500 quid. So I'd go and I'd trawl, trawl through it. And I started making money that way. And then I started thinking about, oh, my own brand, you know, like that'd be amazing if I could do that. And I had a lot of self-belief and I was naive as well to the marketplace because I'd never, I don't want to say I'd never really had a job because I'd had a job. I just never really been that committed to anything other than my drug use and socializing. So um, I sort of like every little milestone in the business that became somewhere I'd be in a magazine or I'd get a celebrity in my clothes or something like that, it fed me. And I just like was getting more and more self-belief and it massively grew. It's really interesting that you used to do that with charity shops because I did exactly that as well when I was <laughs> I was in rehab in this small town in the Cotswolds Ooh, and they just had these amazing there. and I'd worked I'd worked on Portobello Road on a vintage bag store and so when I w went to this rehab in the Cotswolds and I saw all these amazing vintage bags and things and I was like oh my god in London this would sell for blah blah blah. Mm. And I didn't manage to do it quite on the scale you did. I wasn't buying Burberry coats for £10, sadly. So I wasn't quite making the markup, uh, which is why I'm probably not doing it now. But it was really, it was a real buzz because it's like you're when you're really like doing your own thing and creating your own income source and your own business. Like, yeah. And I think as addicts, we are really enterprising. Totally. You know, we do have those entrepreneurial skills because we've survived some like um, some situations and got out of some situations that would, you know, that take a bit of creativity to get out of. <laughs> 100%. And after two years of the business, an investor from New York um, shown interest on Twitter and wanted to fly me to New York to discuss selling shares in my business. Blew my mind. But what you just said then was what my investor said to me was, you know, like your mind, the way your mind works to problem solve and get out of a situation is impeccable business skills. You know, that's what you need in business. I won't be told no, because at the end of the day, if I called my drug dealer and they said, oh yeah, sorry, we're out. There's nothing, nothing here today. I'm not going to be like, oh, okay, then I'll just go into withdrawals. Thanks so much. Bye. <laughs> I'm never going to do that, am I? It's going to be, I'm going to do whatever it takes, exactly. even if it means pharmaceutical. <laughs> you know, I'm going to do it. Travelling miles, you know, like bunking a train and travelling miles to 100%. It or whatever. You know. 
And no yeah. way I wouldn't get money either. You know, like I was crafty. I would do whatever it took. And those yeah. skills are very transcendable in business. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And actually going back to what you said about stifled creativity as well. You know, I was thinking about this and it was something I felt as well throughout my throughout my addiction I felt like there was something in me there was something much more um but I never really knew what it was because I didn't have any evidence of it yes when I was at school I was like quite bright and capable but I since those days those days were long gone and I hadn't done anything like really productive or creative with my life since then other and and all that energy had gone into self-destruction and I sort of feel like you know that energy that you put into self-destruction or destruction can be channeled into creation I know so many addicts who've done like really incredible things with their lives once they've got into recovery because they've taken that same energy they put into kind of destroying themselves into creating something new and um, and wonderful yeah definitely I've seen it as well especially those that turn to art I love seeing your pain in your art whatever your art may be your music your you know painting whatever it is there's like a darkness in me and I I like to see it when somebody has expressed the darkness within themselves creative, creatively. And I love that. I love it. And I know I'm going back to him again. I was slightly obsessed. Uh, but Peter Doherty, like, when... Sorry, sorry, I'm such a stalker. Um, but, like, when he used to I'm make... I'm just art, laughing because I was too. <laughs> but that you. whole scene made it so glamorous and so romanticised. And these people who were absolutely destroying themselves with drugs, but in a very sort of poetic way yeah. and romantic yeah absolutely yeah so I totally I totally get it that's why I'm that's why I'm smiling at you <laughs> but he made artwork out of blood and he had a little studio actually like right next to Camden Lock where he kept a lot of his artwork and I knew the guy that rented the room or whatever so he used to say I'll take you up there if you want and you can see somewhere and I just used to think oh my god blood on a canvas how beautiful you know, it was that sort of like bleeding, tragic artist with the, you know, romanticism and I want to be the muse. Please let me be the muse next. <laughs> yeah, but I did. <laughs> I, I fell for that whole scene. But in a way, even as toxic as that was, when I went into recovery, I saw I sort of believed that I was creative and that you can put pain into art so it wasn't such a bad thing. It was just quite toxic and unrealistic at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, so you, you went to see a, a big investor and this for your brand. Tell me what happened next. Oh, this is mental because like I'd only ever seen New York on Sex and the City and like obviously being like a fashion, you know, lover. I was like, New York? What, you want me to fly there? And he was like, yeah, don't worry. I'm going to put you up in a hotel and you can come and meet me and my wife. Because I was a bit scared, you know, like obviously the characters that I had associated with since I was like 14 years old were not always people you could trust. Honestly, it was so amazing that somebody even like took interest or belief in my brand or what I was doing. I believed in my message that I was sending, but, you know, I didn't 
think other people, especially business types, would be interested in it. So I flew to New York and I stayed in this sick hotel. Oh my God, it had like, you know, like um, stairs, what they called, you know, the the moving stairs. Sorry, I've just lit Escalators. Escalators, there we go. Like up to the reception desk and all cool lighting. And I was just like, oh my God, this is where I'm meant to be. And I went to his <laughs> apartment block and it was like security men outside, you know, like the black men in black uh, glasses on. There was a library in his apartment block, an Olympic-sized swimming pool, a gym bigger than our biggest gym in Jersey, and a children's soft play area. I could not believe it. And he was just really like, so um, how did you learn these skills, you know, like that you've got? And I just sort of said, like what you said before, you know, well, living a life around drugs and addiction and survival and doing whatever it takes to get money to survive so you're not sick gave me this business knowledge, I think. You know, you get a, ma- a product you can cut it up, you can sell it on, you know, you can make your profit. And it was like I'd learn in a very, very unconventional way practical business skills. And the fact that he believed in me really made me more believe in myself. And then after about six months, he said he'd invested in a retail real estate business that had like primary locations in shopping districts around America so Saks Avenue, Melrose Avenue, Fifth Avenue. And he was like, there's this shop. It's opposite Alexander McQueen on Melrose Avenue. Do you want to go in there? And I was just like, I didn't even think. I was like, yes, I can do that. But in my head, I'm like, you've never opened a shop. What are you talking about? What do you even do? Like, And then the panic hit in. You know, I was like, oh, my God, I need hangers. I need rails. I need, like, a shop design. I need, like, branding. I need signage. I need stock. I need labels. I need a label-making machine. It was all these things. And But when I got there and I got to L.A., I opened a shop in four days. I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep because that was the addict mind in me. I was going to make this happen. And I did it and it looked sick. Like, I know that's maybe not humble, but it really did. I don't care. It was like amazing. It was like the best thing I ever did in my life. And I couldn't believe it. And I was just looking around and it was like everything I'd ever envisioned in my mind was right in front of me. And like... I just kept thinking that it's because I'm trying so hard, you know, like to be the best version of myself I can be, that the universe was rewarding me, you know, like my manifestations were coming true and things were really starting to happen. But the downside of that is when all your worth and all your self-belief is in a business, when it doesn't go well, everything comes crashing down and your belief and your worth and everything. So I really did have a growing experience and a learning experience. And I think when things didn't go the way I wanted it to in business, it affected me spiritually, which it shouldn't have. I should have been enough detached to not allow that. But again, we're all growing and learning and learning our way. (laughs) 
experience is the only teacher, right? So, I mean, you, people can tell you that, but you'll only learn it when you actually walk it, I think. And I just, I relate so much to that. I think I I became so, you know, my career was so um, important to me in my sort of first chunk of recovery. Uh, it was so exciting. It was new. Everything was like exciting, exciting, exciting. And, and I started to lose myself in that. And I started to think that that was all I was worth. And that that was all that was of value about me. And um, and I started to think that was the only reason people were friends with me, which is like ridiculous now I when know. I think about it. But like, I literally thought if I didn't have this particular status within my job or I wasn't doing working on these exciting projects, no one would even be interested in me because I don't have anything else. And I mean, that is crazy for me to say, but I literally thought that. And I also thought if I could be more successful then I could be worthy of love like if I I would like the next achievement I totally get that now looking back in with like clear fresh eyes for the first time in a long time you know I can see every point especially because I'm on step one again (laughs) I can see every single point where I was using an external gratification for my worth constantly, you know, and it's hard because I'm trying not to make those mistakes again, but it is uncomfortable sometimes sitting with pain and I do want to be around an exciting person that's going to, you know, make me not think or feel for a moment. But ultimately when I can, because I am very busy and have children and I can be alone self-care and crystal baths with magnesium flakes and listening to music like I've got a recovery playlist at the moment it's sick and there's some songs in there that are like you know I'm a survivor and then there's songs (laughs) in there like James Arthur recovery and Demi Lovato warrior and you know there is a lot of music out uh, music's always really talked to me so hindsight great thing isn't it you know, but yeah, can't change anything Absolutely. now. Absolutely, yeah. But that's the, yeah, but you've learned that lesson and that's, you know, that gives you that sort of, um, that experience that can help others. And I think that that's like, uh, you know, I'm so grateful that you just said that because I think that is something that's sometimes left out of the story. Like we, we like to see these sort of like narratives of like, here was this person and they were like, they were in the, you know, in the depths of addiction and then they got clean and they made a success of a their life and now everything's amazing. And they lived happily <laughs> ever after in their big house with their happy <laughs> children and their dog. No way. It's not like like that at all but I do also think it's like it's a common thing societally that's what we are fed that's what we're taught that's what we're taught you know if the more successful you become the more status you have the more money you have the more kind of you know achievements you get you know we get the house you get the bigger house you get the house with the garden and you, you know you get those things and at the end of those happiness is 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 awaiting you but not but every time you get to the end of those, you realise it's, it's not there and you need to get to the end. It's a trick. Yeah, you there's need to always get to... another stage. There's always another level. There's always level. something more you have to do to get to the happiness that you're being promised. Yeah. yeah. I'm just really trying to sit still now in the achievements that I've already made, you know, and really reflect on what I have already done. And like, it's mad I don't have self-worth do you know what I mean I'm like why why don't I have it because 
I'm so lucky. Like, I'm so blessed, you know. Like, if I actually look around at what, you know, what other people have or their life circumstances, I'm, like, mad lucky and, like, really, really blessed. But some days and sometimes I just don't see it like that. I, I have a different perspective and it's like, why is my life so hard? Why every day do I have to fight something? My mind and intrusive thoughts. And why do I have to work a program? Why do I have to do step work? Why do I have to write down things and do vision boards and spells? And do you know, it's therapy and whatever else I have to do. Some days I just am like that. But on a whole, and right now, because I'm in re-recovery buzz, I'm in that whole, like, I'm so grateful for everything in my life. I'm so happy right now. Yeah. But, but not it's all so the time. beautiful when that comes, because I have I had that experience as well, of having, like, recovery first time around. It was amazing. It was like, it was just, yeah, I was on, I was on cloud nine for, like, three years. And um, the last year, not so much. But anyway, um, I'm going to try and hold it around, for three years. I'm so glad you said yeah. three years because, like, I'm going to hold on to it. But then this time around, I was like, when I came back um, into recovery five years ago, I, I was just like, I've lost this magical thing. I'm never going to get it back. And it wasn't the same. It wasn't like. It wasn't like this whoomph, like a rocket taking off. It was like slow and steady and trudging this road. And then I'd get these little breakthroughs over really small things, like really small things. And I'd just get this little bit of light in and I'd be like, "Ah," and a little penny would drop. And then I'd sort of, you know, it wasn't the same, but it it was beautiful when I started to feel, ah, I'm out of the woods again a little bit. Like I feel It's like a butterfly. You're coming out of the cocoon of like self-hatred, shame, guilt. And when you like shed that again and you start seeing like your capabilities and your worth again and reminding yourself who you are, then Mm. yeah, it, it is beautiful. It is beautiful. And Lauren, I know that we haven't even spoken really about how you started using drugs and and what that looked like and how you got into recovery first time around. Um, Could you tell me about that? Yeah, I was 14, nearly 15 when I started using heroin. Um, It was a really quick, you know, process. I sort of missed... I did do the whole like teenage drinking out and then starting to take ease and then acid, smoking weed. But everything was like an extreme, you know, like I didn't smoke a joint. I did a bucket in my mate's bath. But I think ultimately what was happening was I had a lot of emotional needs. I was always really depressed, but like there was no reason for me to be depressed, you know, like my... Well, at that time, there wasn't. Um, But then my mom and dad had a really bad divorce um, that really impacted on me. I think I always craved male love and male attention more so than the other girls around me. And I would be like vying for my dad's attention constantly. But it was an an unhealthy like level it was like I was constantly like needing validation and love from like a male source and 
yeah it was just in me to be like to be like that so yeah sorry I just really relate to that I remember like one of my memories of childhood um is that fantasy of thinking when I get a boyfriend when I'm old enough to get a boyfriend everything will be okay and just being fixated on it and maybe that is sort of I don't know if that's normal teenage girl stuff but I was obsessed like you think they're the prince the savior that's going to save you from your emotional turmoil and you're yeah, going to be taken exactly. away and you're going to live this other life with this man of your dreams. And God, that's that's a false story, isn't it? It's a false narrative. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, but I 100%. had that, you know, and, and so because the relationship with my mum and my dad and myself and was completely breaking down, I was seeking that love and validation from any male. Any male that would show me, I mean, even a look, I would be like, oh, please, love me, love me, love me, please. And, um, yeah, the badder the better as well. That made it even more exciting because maybe then I'd get my dad's attention too at all, at all these, the bad boys I'm bringing home, you know. But obviously it completely backfired on me. And um, my first sort of love, real love, um, was an addict and you know like when there's two ch kids in pain and you're like justifying each other's behaviors because he's doing it well it's fine I do it then you know and I got totally engrossed but I loved it in the criminal world like I was so young and I knew how to commit credit card fraud I was one of the worst shoplifters I was on shop watch I became so dependable, dependent sorry, on the boy and the drug that when he went to prison and I was like on my own, I just done what I had to do. You know, I had to find another addict so that I could like feed off them. But I'm still at this time, I'm still like 16 years old. And um, I used to let my bed set be used to cut up drugs and s distribute them and drug squad were watching who I was letting do it and my flat got raided my bed oh, flat you god that's a bit uh generous my bed set got raided and um I was terrified like I'd been taught from a young age you don't grass nobody grasses if you grass you die so you know I wouldn't grass basically and so I got sentenced by the magistrate's court as a 16-year-old girl. They didn't even do it in youth court. And I should have been sent to the young offenders. But luckily, my dad had submitted a uh, plan to the court saying, please, can we send her to a connected foster carer in Scotland, where I'm from, which is my sister, which, would, which is my auntie. And we have found a school that will accept her because I've been expelled from so many schools where I'm from. Um, would they allow me to do a year's probation banished from the island to try and get my life back in Scotland? So thank God the court said yes, because I, I've never actually been to prison yet, but it was touch and go. And um, I was sent to Scotland and I stayed clean that year, mainly because being a girl from Jersey, there's a lot of security blankets here and it's not really as 
larger social issues, like not really homeless, not really gangs or anything like that. But in Scotland, where I was living, I was very aware. Um, I couldn't run, run around the same way I was running around in my home island. So I sort of kept myself together. But as soon as I'd come back to Jersey, I'd use or London, I was the worst for like, when I'd be in London, trailing the streets, finding the big issue sellers, finding the escorts, finding whoever I could that would help me score. And um, yeah, that just went on for years. But because I started so young, I'd learned to hide it well, which is why I think I'm good at PR as well and marketing, because I had to rebrand myself so many times, but it was a lie, you know, but I'd wear the fake lashes, I'd go for the sunbeds, I'd have the fake tans, the Saint-Tropez, so that I didn't look like a junkie, but I was a junkie. So how did you get into recovery after all of that? I overdosed in my bedroom, and when I OD'd, I fell on top of my bedside table lamp and burnt for hours through to my skull. So I was de-scalped and I was undergoing three and a half years of reconstructive plastic surgery to my head where they had to graft the skin from the tops of my legs. And then I obviously spiraled even worse into my addiction to block out the pain of everything really. So when my lung collapsed, they said, and I was in the hospital in Camden, they said, listen, we're going to do extensive x-rays on your lungs. Any chance you're pregnant? And I just said, oh, I doubt it because I don't, don't think my body could even carry a baby. And um, he came back and said, listen, you're like three weeks pregnant, but we don't know if you're going to survive. I don't think this baby's going to survive. If I'm being honest, you better prepare yourself mentally for that to happen next. So I remember just lying in intensive care, couldn't move, nothing. Just thinking like, oh my God, if only this baby would live, like everything would change. And then on the telly, it was like, Amy Winehouse, 27 years old, found dead in Cam Camden home. And I was just like, whoa, like that was crazy because I always like felt this like, connection with her you know and don't get me wrong I wasn't like a friend but I'd see her in like the good mixer and other dodgy places where we'd be do picking up or whatever and we'd have a chat and because I was going through my head surgery she'd always be like as the head and I'd show her like the the scab of the day you know and we'd have a little chat and I remember her saying that she always wanted to be a mum and I was like oh me too that's all I've ever wanted and I just thought then, oh my God, I'm like the same age. Like, this is my chance. And I didn't believe in God whatsoever, but I prayed that time. And I just said, please, I will fight this as much as I possibly can if you let this baby live. And um, they brought me down off the opiates, which was a struggle because they're like, this isn't the Priory, it's the NHS. But I got a really good male nurse. I think about him all the time and I wish I would have got his name because I would love to thank him now because what he gave me, he probably has no idea about. That makes me quite emotional. That's crazy, actually. Um, yeah, and he, he really helped me. But he uh, when I was ready to be discharged, he is like, 
you've got to do this now, kid. He was like Northern, you know, as well. And it like reminded me of like my mum's side of the family. And he was like, you know, you've got to do this now, kid. This is you. This is the hard bit. This is your mind. You've got to fight now. And I returned back to Jersey and yeah, that's where like my recovery began. It was a bit rocky in the beginning, you know, but I ended up in NA and with a sponsor and working my step works and, and yeah, that's where I got my, my life back basically. Wow. What an, wow. I mean, amazing to have survived all that. Yeah. God, it's horrific. I mean, so there's so much trauma in that that you've just spoken about. And that's the thing is like in recovery, you have to be responsible for treating that trauma. You know, like you can't just expect to have trauma like that in your life and then go into recovery and just have a great life without constant work and reflection. So I'm going to like just ask you the last few questions now, which um, I can tend to ask everyone on the podcast because the podcast is called Back to Life. Um, I want to know what song is bringing you back to life at the moment. I'm so glad you asked me that. I thought you might be with your recovery playlist. (laughs) So Midnight Sky, Miley Cyrus, I'd heard it a thousand times before and felt nothing you know I was like oh nice tune you know like in the background but now it's like I was born a runner don't belong to anyone and I don't need your love I don't need your love to feel like I'm worthy or and I don't need anyone's external love like I'm powerful enough all on my own and um, that song is giving me life at the moment but there's many songs at the moment that are giving me life. I have a whole place list. Fighter, Christina Aguilera, um, My Life was huge, Eminem and 50 Cent, because I love 50's verse in it. It's like, I'm a, I'm a writer, I'm a fighter, entrepreneur, fresh out the sewer, watch me manoeuvre. Oh, love it. <laughs> love that. Anything that like empowers me, Written I'm for like, you. yes. <laughs> yes. um so what is the happiest one of the happiest days of your life a day that you sort of felt most alive in LA when I when I when I got my shop up and I just looked around and looked at the palm trees in the distance and the sun setting on Melrose Avenue and just to think that like three years previously I was shooting up heroin with not hope in the world to now having a shop and just it was it it was almost a drug to be honest it was so fulfilling uh what three things are in your toolkit for um staying alive training physical exercise boxing yoga you know the gym training so good for your mind so good for your body so good for your self-esteem therapy and not just therapy like tools around therapy so EDT I find very very effective for reprogramming um sound baths everything spiritual you know like I love vibrations where I can feel like my body actually shake and I feel connected to my heart and soul I'm going to one next week I'm so excited and um three meditation I've got headspace and I do the courses a lot. Um, 
I do it as I'm going to sleep because it's the only time I don't have without children that I can actually concentrate. I love meditation as yeah. well. Um, yeah, I feel like it's really like changed my life. And, I, and it's not a quick fix, is it? No. But it's something you look back in hindsight, you're like, wow. Yeah, I'm able to choose my thoughts or like ignore destructive thoughts much easier. I'm sure that that's down Or notice to what's meditation. a thought, what's a feeling and if yeah. there needs action. And a lot of the time it yeah. needs no action at all. It's just being aware of what the thought process is. I think spiritual practices is huge. Yeah. Like I do spells on the new moon and set intentions and do vision boards and, you know, like, and I have hope and faith love that thank you so much lauren you've been an amazing guest i've really loved speaking to you i feel like we've got so much um in common um throughout our lives yeah um, so yeah i really really love talking to you thanks millie oh i want to come over to jersey and um, i want you to come too come over and hang and out me your yeah. jumpsuit <laughs> <laughs> I loved chatting to Lauren so much. I think you probably heard there we had a really lovely connection and so much shared experience. If you want to find out more about Lauren, you can follow her on Instagram. Her personal account is at Lulu underscore Rocker and her fashion label at Luella Rockefeller. She does an incredible range of hats that are made uh, by women in prison, so teaching them sewing skills and all the profits made from those hats go to a local drug and alcohol rehab. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode too and got something from it as I did. Uh, If you did and you would like to support me to make more, then please do take the time to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference to me and it means that other people can find these episodes more easily too and if you feel the inclination share it with your friends share it in your stories and whatsapp groups and if you want to keep updated on the latest episodes uh, and back to life chat uh, come and join the community we're creating on instagram at back to life pod I really love hearing your feedback. It really does make my day and spurs me on to continue to make these. So thank you everyone who's been in touch so far. You really are the best. Thank you so much for spending this time with me and Lauren. Uh, Have a lovely rest of your week and I will see you next time. Take it easy. Bye.